This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, everybody. It's good to have you with us. This is the efforts, as I say each week, of all of our reporters, our news anchors, and editors as what they feel are the stories you need to know about. Maybe you only got a headline or two or miss a story completely. Stories to affect our lifestyle, education, our health. This is a way for you to catch up. So let's get to our stories ending for the week of January 14th. The governor delivers his State of the State address, and the legislature gets down to business. Big concern raised over school violence in one local district. Also, frustrations over hypodermic needles ending up in the sewer. Just a fraction of the stories that we have just ahead. Let's now get to our first story. Climate change and clean energy were among three big areas Governor Jay Inslee spoke about this past week in his State of the State address. The governor called for quicker and easier permitting to build clean energy projects, expanding our electricity infrastructure, and doing more to protect salmon habitat to prevent their extinction. Inslee also talked about joining some lawmakers in Tri-Cities to talk about a new institute for Northwest Energy Futures at Washington State University. This institute will put the region to be a global leader and in the global forefront of clean tech innovation. Go Cougs! The governor also called on lawmakers to help him get a referendum on your ballot for $4 billion in bonds to help scale up the building of new housing, which he says we can't live without if we want to end homelessness. Meanwhile, lawmakers in the minority say the governor and legislative Democrats in power have used fear instead of hope to sell these policies. Ryan Harris now with the latest. The Republican response to the governor's state of the state speech came from Centralia Representative Peter Abarno, who says Democrats' policies have made Washington more expensive and more dangerous. Abarno says they should give you the tools and opportunities for success. We could reduce the sales tax, which disproportionately hurts lower and fixed income Washingtonians. We could provide property tax relief and build more homes so that young families can own a piece of the American dream. We could expand the working families tax credit to get more money into the pockets of our neighbors to provide for greater economic security. We should invest in education, early learning, and child care opportunities for working families. Abarno says they agree that more cops need to be put to work, but he says the 2021 police reform laws that prevent police pursuits need to be reversed and more repeat criminals should be kept behind bars. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. One of the key issues for the legislature this year is fixing the Blake decision from the state Supreme Court, which decriminalized the procession of some drugs. Lawmakers are divided on the fix, and so is a committee appointed to draft recommendations to the legislature. Here's Carlene Johnson. One key suggestion from the Substance Use Recovery Services Advisory Committee is to permanently decriminalize small amounts of drugs, instead encouraging more treatment through diversion programs. Malika Lamont, a committee member, supports that recommendation. She represents experts on community-based diversion programs, but complains that most of the experts the committee has put before lawmakers on this have been white with diversity, equity, and inclusion supposed to be at the forefront. Is that in alignment with um, the governor's guidance around equity? Some other members pushed back to say the committee leaders and other agency experts who have testified were asked specifically to speak out because of their expertise. They make the call on who they want to uh, bring in. Lawmakers have set a December 2023 deadline for the health care authority to adopt rules and sign contracts with providers to implement whatever the final plan is as agreed 
guaranteed by the legislature. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Some in the law enforcement community argue that juveniles shouldn't always be given lawyers when being questioned by police. During a press conference on other topics, Robert Lurie, the vice president of the King County Police Officers Guild, suggested officers be allowed to question children without a lawyer present. We're throwing all these legal rights at them and we're giving them every reason in the world to not cooperate with the law. At issue is a state requirement that when a child is contacted by police, officers must first get them an attorney before beginning an interrogation. Criminal defense lawyer David Treeweiler was appalled at Lurie's comments. They're pretty outrageous statements, really, um, in that they indicate a complete lack of respect for constitutional rights. Treeweiler points out that children have the same rights as adults in the criminal justice system, including the right to have a lawyer present before you talk to the police, the right uh, against self-incrimination. He says simply reading a child the Miranda warning isn't enough as juveniles frequently don't understand what they can and cannot do when talking to police. But Lurie says that shouldn't matter. Miranda is applicable to juveniles. It's up to the juvenile to assess whether or not he wants to talk to us. The law requiring the presence of an attorney for children during questioning was designed to prevent an officer from unduly influencing a child into waiving their rights. But some now want that law repealed. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. As we move on to more stories here for the week ending January the 14th, a bill making the rounds at the state capitol would remove racist language used in unemployment documents. It's hard to believe it took this long. This language ties back to 1765 in an English book. The words master and servant made their way into Washington law and remain there to this day to describe the relationship between employee and employer. Caitlin Jekyll is with the State Employment Security Department. Commentaries on the laws of England, which established this reference to master and servant, and the terminology was pulling directly from terms modeled after American slavery. State Representative Mary Fossey is carrying the bill. It would remove the terms master and servant from the statutes mentioned. The language is outdated and racist. It's a change long overdue. Caitlin Jekyll. Employment Security Department are working with great intention on building cultural competency within our agencies to really be a pro-equity, anti-racist state. House Bill 1107 is going to need the approval of the state legislature and the governor before it becomes law. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, John. Electric utilities would be required to create wildfire risk mitigation plans under legislation introduced this past week. Do power companies cause wildfires? Are they responsible for preventing them? A new Senate bill assumes the answers are yes and yes and calls on utilities to reduce the risk. The sponsor is State Senator Christine Rolfus, Kitsap County Democrat. She says the current bill is utility friendly compared to the original version. The bill started out last year uh, giving citizens the right to sue utilities if their houses burned down based on utility caused wildfires. This year's bill requires utilities to come up with mitigation measures that might include tree trimming and infrastructure upgrades. Okanagan PUD Commissioner Scott Vitroska objects. We're already doing everything that's already asked of us. We just don't need a plan that with a big brother or somebody looking over us. Under the bill, utilities would have until Halloween 2024 to come up with their wildfire mitigation plans. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Governors in roughly half of all the states are restricting access to the Chinese-owned social media platform TikTok on government devices. And more bans we hear? Are coming. In fact, a story we found in the Washington Post, Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler sharing. Your report is that most of these bans are coming from Republican governors, but Democrats are joining them. Where might we see some of these new bans? 
one that we're really keeping an eye on is Wisconsin, where Governor Tony Evers, who's a Democrat, said that he plans to ban it probably sometime this week. It's not clear what that ban would look like. These bans have come in different shapes and sizes. Some ban the device on state phones, some ban it on state networks. But I guess time will tell what Evers will do in Wisconsin. Okay, we didn't see bans like this on YouTube or Facebook apps on government phones. What are the governors giving as a reason for the TikTok restrictions? So they're citing ByteDance's ownership of TikTok. And ByteDance is this Chinese internet giant. And a lot of critics say that ByteDance can exert control over TikTok and Chinese officials could force TikTok to hand over data on TikTok users. So they're citing a lot of security and privacy concerns, which I will note that TikTok refutes and says this is sort of fueled by misinformation. There's a ban for federal employees as well. They can't use TikTok on federal devices. Private citizens, we can still access the service anytime. But could that be changing? Could the U.S. outright ban TikTok from the country? So I think that's probably still too early to tell. One thing is that that would raise a whole bunch of legal questions about the First Amendment and all different kinds of things. The Trump administration tried to do a similar thing with some apps, and that was sort of taken down in the courts. So it looks like these sort of piecemeal approaches are what you really keep an eye on right now in in terms of governments restricting it for government employees. Finally, Aaron, have we heard any response to these uh, restrictions from TikTok? Yeah. So TikTok, again, does say that these are sort of fueled by misinformation. They also say that U.S. officials haven't provided much evidence of being connected with uh, the Chinese government. And they also say that they're working on a deal with the U.S. government with this interagency committee called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to sort of hammer out a deal over privacy and security. All right, Aaron, thanks for your insight. That is Aaron Schaefer. You can read his entire piece at WashingtonPost.com. Stories just ahead in our next segment, Federal Way School Violence and also Childhood Obesity. But now the story of Eric Heinz. King County has a new top law enforcement officer. Lisa Mannion is both the first woman and the first person of color to hold the office. I state your name. I, Lisa Mannion. Having been duly elected. Having been duly elected. To the office of prosecuting attorney. To the office of prosecuting attorney. She was elected King County prosecutor last fall after the retirement of Dan Satterberg, who she served as chief of staff. In her inaugural speech, Mannion said public safety means both responding to crime and helping people recover and restore their lives. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're in tune to Northwest News this week, ending for the week of January 14. Don't go away. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Welcome back. As we continue here, the big stories of the week ending January the 14th. It wasn't on the agenda at Tuesday night school board meeting in Federal Way, but during public comment, nearly every person who testified raised concerns about violence in schools and the lack of transparency from the district. Carlene Johnson attended that meeting. This is unconscionable. I can't even imagine. A large group of parents and members of a community group called Federal Way Cares showed up to address the school board in a meeting at Mirror Lake Elementary last night. They waited until the very end when it was time for public comment to one by one read from police reports of incidents at Federal Way schools that they say the district is trying to sweep under the rug. The unidentified student seen attempting to stomp on the head of one of the students during the fight. One of the suspects fled on foot and was found at a high school with a gun, five shell casings found at scene. Charged Four females assaulted a female after cornering her and threatening her and later pulling her off the bus and punching her. 
A male in the bathroom was randomly assaulted by another male who was unknown to him. Victim was an IEP and has autism. Security officials tell Northwest News Radio there are increasingly serious incidents that the public deserves to know about, but for fear of losing a job, I'm told they would not go on the record with me. Now, one man who heads up a mentorship group had a differing opinion that did not go over well with the crowd. If teachers are afraid, then they shouldn't be teaching. We fear what we don't understand. A staff member in the district told board members she knows what teachers are up against with increasingly violent situations to deal with. But after hearing the testimony, she urged the board to be honest about how bad it is and get the community and organizations involved in fixing it. What I'm hearing is that the public wants solutions. They want to be included in solutions. They want transparency, partnership. Federal Superintendent Danny Pfeiffer was in attendance, but after the meeting, she told me she had no comment. Her spokesperson did email me a statement that says, in part, the district has made significant investments toward improving safety and security, teaching and reteaching expectations using positive behaviors. They go on to say, we have built strong mentorship programs in our schools that reach youth who are at risk of engaging in unsafe activities and have invested in physical security improvements like cameras and perimeters. Fencing. That parent group tells me they want a dialogue with the district because everyone knows what's going on and everyone is increasingly concerned about what could happen next. In Federal Way, Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. The Seattle and Kent school districts have filed lawsuits against a number of major social media players on the grounds. They're contributing to a mental health crisis among youth here in Washington. Brian Calvert, in fact, saying there might not be enough research yet to back him up on that claim. In the 80s, teens communicated via landline. The 90s brought the cell phone. Email was the new way to talk in the 2000s. Then came social media. It's how many people still communicate today. Only there's the added wrinkle of accountability or lack thereof. They can put out whatever they want of themselves on the internet. And that's kind of dangerous. Eric Sarvella is a young dad, and he remembers when social media was young. He also remembers how he abused it. I was trying to kind of show off as I was younger, and, you know, I can see where they're coming from. A recent study out of the University of North Carolina watched a group of middle school students use social media for three years and found the part of their brains that regulates emotions was indeed very sensitive to seeing likes, dislikes, positives, and negatives online. Those kids that weren't on social media as much, not as sensitive. But neuroscience professor Bonnie Nagel at Oregon Health and Sciences University cautions drawing too many conclusions just yet. The researchers efforts to to try to understand this are good, I don't know that we can say that much based on what they found. She's involved in a similar study that takes place over a decade, and they're barely just over halfway through. She tells KGW.com. You can't infer causality here. You can't say that their brains developed in this way because of that type of social media use. You can only say that people who have that type of social media use at age 12 have different brain trajectories. So yes, they are noting differences in development. We started at age 9, 10. The kids are now well in the midst of their teen years. Uh, We've been following them for six years, seven years, eight years, depending on when they were enrolled. So they're going to be able to tell us a lot about how these different things impact the brains. Just not quite yet, she cautions. It's an interesting note because we all know someone who takes their social media presence very seriously and is often wounded when scolded online or maybe 
they go online seeking praise and attention. That all could, in fact, affect your overall mental health. Can we prove the extent of how it impacts your overall development? That indicates, Professor Nagel, is the prize still being sought. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. New guidance on childhood obesity from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Derek Dennis had a story for ABC News and shared this with our listeners. Derek, these experts are telling doctors to be much more aggressive when it comes to the treatment of childhood obesity. This is really a first of its kind statement from the American Association of uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Excuse me. And basically, what it's saying is that doctors, pediatricians need to consider and actually recommend medication and even bariatric surgery in obese children 12 to 13 years old, especially when they are at greater risk or even already have complications, including uh, diabetes, hypertension, uh, and depression because of their weight. And so uh, before the recommendation was to take sort of a watch-and-wait approach, now the AAP is saying, Surgery and medication are safe and effective and needed remedies for children who are obese. Well, that is quite a departure from where we are today, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, typically a doctor would, would take note of an obese child and maybe recommend dieting or some other non-invasive measure. Now uh, they're saying medication, definitely, and uh, surgery needs to be considered and recommended at, at the pediatric level for obese children. So this is really a stunning and and an incredible turnabout in terms of the recommendations. And of course, this all goes hand in hand with what was an eye-opening study. Right. I mean, the studies have sort of kind of run the gamut, but never before have we seen a recommendation going in the way of medication and bariatric surgery for obese children. Uh, But they're saying that the, the risk is definitely outweighed by the benefits and that children who are obese are at greater risk of developing even more serious complications as they get older. So no benefit to waiting, the the study says, that the uh, treatments, the medication, the surgeries are safe and effective and may even be necessary for obese children. And of course, it's not all just surgery. There are some lifestyle changes that are being reflected in all of this as well, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, dieting for sure, uh, portion control is another. Uh, Just seeing a nutritionist is uh, highly recommended for parents uh, of obese children and and coming from a pediatrician. All of it needs to be supervised medically. But for the first time, we're actually hearing surgery and medication for weight loss should come as a recommendation from pediatricians in the treatment for obese children. That's ABC's Derek Dennis with us on the Northwest Newsline. Another story of the past week we want to make sure you knew of. Ditch your New Year's diet plans and fill up on high-fat and sugar-laden foods. Marina Rockinger explains how it's all for science. It does seem too good to be true, but researchers at University of Washington's Nutrition and Obesity Research Center say it's legit. They are looking for people willing to eat for science. I asked Dr. Ellen Schur, who is leading the study, what they're trying to find. We are uh, asking a question that's related to some data that actually was first shown in um, mice. Um, And what it showed is that when you 
feed mice a particular diet that's high in calories, high in fat, and sometimes high in sugar also, um, they demonstrate inflammation in that small area of the hypothalamus that is involved in regulating body weight. They'll use an MRI to determine if it's the same in humans. It's a two-week study where you get to indulge for the first week with all that high saturated fat and high sugar goodness, but then the second week will be more restricted. Dr. Shore tells me the results could lead to figuring out how limiting that inflammation in the hypothalamus could help regulate weight gain. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. In our next segment, needles in a sewer. That's a little bit much. And latest on whale sightings. And we also have this story, too. Environmental activists on the UW campus saying the fossil fuel industry should stop its job recruiting efforts on campus. Their protest included a sit-in. Corwin Hick with a story. On a daily basis, you'll find the student members of Institutional Climate Action, UW branch, camped on the floor of the university's career center, sometimes sitting in dead silence. Currently, the career center is being used as a testing site. We are being completely silent so we don't disturb anyone. Other times, UW junior Lauren Henry admits on Instagram the group gets a little rowdy. We were having fun, so the executive director of the career center came out to tell us to be quiet. Their message, though, is always serious. The group wants the career center to bar the fossil fuel industry from recruiting interns on campus. To them, such activities clash with the concession the activists won last fall when the University Board of Regents agreed to divest from companies that profit from greenhouse gas emitting fuels. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. It's Northwest News this week. You're catching up to the top stories ending here the week of January 14. Also available as a podcast at your convenience at nwnewsradio.com. We have more to come. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. As we continue Northwest this week, the things we put in our hair and on our faces would be free of more harmful chemicals. It's under a new bill that just got its first state capital hearing. Cosmetics is a pretty broad term, which includes things like makeup, hair products, and lotions. And opponents of the bill want to rewrite so that it doesn't target most non-prescription drugs. Peter Godlewski with the Association of Washington Business says they also want to tweak the language on so-called formaldehyde-releasing agents. Which are actually not the same as formaldehyde, are important for the safety of the product. By serving as the antimicrobial agents. This would also put the bill in alignment with California and EU, which have similar exemptions. Dr. Marissa Smith with the State Ecology Department says products targeted at black and immigrant communities are often full of these chemicals, as they discovered in tests last year. We found lead, arsenic, and formaldehyde in cosmetic products. The presence of lead in foundations and lipsticks is particularly concerning because lead harms brain development, and there is no safe level of lead exposure. This was the bill's first hearing, so there will be more before it gets its first vote. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. An exasperated public works director here in our state wonders why he has to tell people not to flush hypodermic needles down the toilet. It's an issue in College County. In Longview, Ken Hash says he thought it was just happenstance when his crew had to clean dozens of needles out of a single storm drain. But then, he tells KOIN News. They came back a couple weeks later and looked again and there was another 30 to 40 hypodermic needles. Hash, Longview Director of Public Works, concluded the needles could only be coming from one of 24 households in a fairly affluent neighborhood. He sent a letter to all 24 
telling them it's bad enough his crews have to work with human waste. But to add needle pricks in there um, just makes the job extra dangerous. One customer seemingly does not know about drop-off sites for sharps and other medical waste. Not trying to judge people, but here's somebody who obviously doesn't know it's not a good idea to flush needles down the toilet. Hash says he can pinpoint the exact house if he has to, then send in police officers to perform a wellness check. In Cowlitz County, Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Last year was a record year for Salish Sea whales. Kathy O'Shea explains. Whale sightings are increasing, indicating progress within the ecosystem. This according to the Pacific Whale Watch Association, who says just 20 years ago, sightings were rare in the Salish Sea. The Orca Behavior Institute credits the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act with the dramatic recovery of the seals, sea lions, and porpoises that support the rising number of whales in the area. BC-based research group Basitology says about 370 whales, including 10 calves, were welcomed in 2022. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Two private jets owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos flew 29,000 miles in a single month according to a publicly available record we found. Video producer Sam Denby tracked the movements of Bezos's two Gulfstream G650 private jets during the month of January 2022, using flight data available to anyone who knows what to look for. He found during that month, the two jets traveled from the Caribbean to Seattle, back and forth from Seattle to L.A., to Hawaii and back, and to and from Washington, D.C., about 29,000 miles for the month. To fuel this extent of travel, his jets used about 24,838 gallons or 94,022 liters of fuel, which could otherwise be used to propel the largest passenger aircraft in the world, an A380, across the Atlantic from DC to London with 500 passengers aboard. Bezos likely recognizes the disconnect between this level of personal consumption and his own stated climate goals. The man whose net worth hovers around $113 billion has famously pledged $10 billion to fight climate change. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Human activity unintentionally kicked off climate change. Can we intentionally alter our atmosphere to not only slow, but even reverse the Earth's rising temperatures? Shannon Osaka looking into a novel idea of stratospheric solar geoengineering for the Washington Post and shared this with us. Taylor Van Sice, by the way, asking questions. Shannon, let's first break down that phrase. It's a big one. What is stratospheric solar geoengineering? Yeah, it is a bit of a mouthful. So stratospheric solar geoengineering is basically the process of releasing aerosols into the stratosphere. So that's like the layer of the atmosphere that's about 12 miles above where we're standing now. And if you release particular types of aerosols, then what those aerosols do is they actually reflect sunlight. They kind of brighten clouds and make less sunlight reach people on the ground. And that has the effect of actually lowering temperatures. So it's this idea that we could use this. It's not the same as removing the carbon dioxide that we've put into the atmosphere, but it can be something that can kind of counteract uh, what we've done. And there's a company you uh, feature in this report called Make Sunsets. What are they doing? What can be done? Yeah, so this is a very interesting company, and they've faced a lot of criticism since they launched. So what they have done so far is they have done probably the first kind of intentional test of stratospheric solar geoengineering, where they've actually taken a weather balloon and sent it up into the atmosphere to try to release these particles. And what their business model is, is that they are trying to sell what they're calling cooling credits so that people can 
pay to have them put sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere to kind of offset fossil fuel use or, you know, taking an international flight or things like that. And this has been very, very controversial among researchers because researchers have traditionally felt, yes, we should look into this type of geoengineering, but we should only do it as a last resort and we should do it in a very careful way. And so the idea of the startup coming in and doing it unilaterally has kind of shaken up the whole field. And the the substance we're talking about here is sulfur dioxide, which, as you note in your report, we make it here on Earth with the fossil fuels we burn as it is. It also comes out of volcanoes, right? Right, exactly. So, I mean, if you think about this type of solar geoengineering, I mean, that kind of means that humans are doing it, but nature does it as well. So Mount Pinatubo, which was a volcano that erupted in the Philippines in 1991, released, you know, millions of tons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. And the result was that 1992 was actually a much cooler year than average. So there is sort of, you know, a precedent in nature. And the question that people have been wrestling with for quite some time is, okay, should we do this? Should we do this kind of artificial action to try to quell what we've already done with um, climate change? Or is it better to just, you know, mitigate our emissions as fast as possible? There is a lot more to this story. Lots of risks involved, according to some scientists, too. And you can find all of it online at WashingtonPost.com from Shannon Osaka. Straight ahead, more into the business loss because of COVID. But this story right now from Manufacturer with some of the changes here for the new year. It's uh, one highway, very popular one where now you need to slow down. And just how much? State Department of Transportation crews will be installing new speed limit signs along a section of Highway 7 in Pierce County. The speed limit will be reduced from 40 to 35 miles an hour from about milepost 48 to 50 in Spanaway. The speed limit changes are the result of a department's speed study in coordination with the state patrol. That reduced speed limit will be enforceable just as soon as those signs are installed. Amanda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week for the week of January 14. A way for you to catch up to those stories of the past week. It's an effort of our reporters, our anchors, and our editors to make sure you know what is going on week by week. You'll find it here every week at this time. Also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. I'm Mark Christopher. Still more to cover right after this. You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Welcome back to Northwest News This Week. We knew the first couple of years of the pandemic were tough on businesses. It was so new to so many, but now we have specific numbers. It also gives you a better idea how many fled our local downtown areas. There have been guesses, and now there's this data from the post office. There were thousands of change of address forms filed for downtown Seattle's 98104 and 98101 zip codes, with 2,400 more businesses moving out than moving in between 2020 and 2022. The data says the worst year was 2020. 2021 saw fewer businesses leave, and in 2022, just over a couple of hundred businesses left. We should note that we don't know if these stores and offices went under or just moved away. Downtown Tacoma and Bellevue experienced similar net losses in business. Meantime, downtown Bonnie Lake had a net gain of 253 businesses over the past few years. John Scholl, CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association, tells the Puget Sound Business Journal that while there are still small businesses suffering, others are rebounding, having their best months ever. Brian Calvin. Northwest News Radio. Countries around the world, including the United States, have imposed new travel restrictions on China because of the latest surge of COVID cases. Outside of China, though, it isn't really known how bad the outbreak has gotten. Samuel Oakford is a video forensics reporter for the Washington Post. He's been analyzing satellite imagery of Chinese 
crematoriums. He shared this with us. Samuel, there are some astounding details in your report from time limits to say goodbye before cremation to scalpers selling spots in lines at funeral homes. Uh, But publicly, how many people does China acknowledge as having died in this new surge of COVID? The uh, Chinese government has uh, acknowledged fewer than 40 deaths tied to the current COVID wave. Now, I think anyone would would find that uh, questionable. But uh, we wanted to better understand just how widespread deaths may be uh, currently. So we took satellite imagery in a number of cities and focused specifically on six, where it was very clear at several funeral homes that the number of people outside of them was growing. We then took video that was taken inside to better see what was happening. And that's where some of those lines you mentioned were talking about. And some of these lasted for hours. People were waiting overnight. And some of these images and and the videos that you included in your report, it reminds me so much of the very first months of the pandemic when no one knew what to do. But this is all happening after China dropped their zero COVID lockdown policy. How widespread across the country is is this rush on Chinese crematoriums? That's a good point. These are scenes that, you know, if you were in a major American city three years ago, they might not be so different than what you saw at a hospital, say there was a lot of activity. It was very scary for everyone. Except in China, because of the zero COVID policy, this is all happening now, all at once. And that means that uh, in basically every part of the country that we looked at, we were able to find evidence of uh, increased activity at these locations where uh, uh, Chinese um, people would be cremated, because that's generally the practice in big urban areas. Urban areas were a big focus in this report, obviously. But when you look at China as a whole, these massive sprawling cities, there's not a lot of room to rebuild these these crematoria. Um, How are they adapting from what you're able to see on satellite images? I mean, is it just a a rush? Yeah. Unlike other countries uh, where COVID waves have hit, you know, we're not able to so much measure, uh, say, a graveyard that's expanded, right? That's something you might be able to see in satellite imagery. And that's really why when we saw this increased activity at these locations, we had to verify it by finding videos that Chinese citizens were posting on their domestic uh, social media platforms. That allowed us to confirm that there was this abnormal level of activity at those locations. It's maybe beyond the powers of satellite imagery to know how many infections have been uh, uh, happening in in China during this surge. But from the information you gathered, are you able to, to take a stab at how many deaths might have occurred? It's really outside of the realm of what we were looking at. We wanted to show that there was this activity at crematoriums, funeral homes, and that it was beyond what is normally happening at this time of year. Uh, And we were able to do that. Experts say that as many as a million or more Chinese citizens could die during this current wave. And nothing we saw uh, would would give us reason to question that a lot of people uh, may ultimately die. No matter the estimate, likely the numbers are far higher than the 40 deaths that China has publicly announced at this point. You can find out much more about this report and dig into the images yourself online at WashingtonPost.com from forensics reporter Samuel Oakford. For one of our unusual stories for the past week, a man visiting our area left something behind and he feels somebody took it. He says he'll probably never get it back, but there's a way that he's watching who has it. And a story we want to make sure you know about calls for emergency medical services skyrocketing 
in Tacoma. Last year, the Tacoma Fire Department responded to over 40,000 calls for emergency medical services. Department spokesman Joe Meineke says the number of EMS calls has skyrocketed over the years at an average of 3% each year. And so we actually respond to over 10,000 more calls annually for emergency medical services than we did uh, 10 years ago. It's part of a trend that doesn't show any signs of slowing down, but how to keep up with those rising costs. Meineke says EMS is supported through the general fund and property tax, and they have not requested a levy renewal for about 17 years. The levy rate is capped at 50 cents per thousand in terms of collection, and it is eroded down to 32 cents. The department is considering asking voters to restore the EMS levy to 50 cents per $1,000 sometime later this year. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week for January the 14th. Make sure you tell your friends, your neighbors, and your coworkers right here is a way for them to catch up. Also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. Just a few more to go. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. Welcome back, and it's good to have you with us. A man who recently traveled through our area left something behind, and while he doesn't think he'll ever get it back, he wants the person who took the item to know he's watching. When Mauro Francis returned home to Vancouver, B.C. from a recent trip, something was missing. He had his wallet, his keys, his suitcase, but wait... Where were his AirPods, those tiny white earbuds? He left them on the plane. No worries, AirPods are Apple products, which means you can track their current location. And I thought I'd check out to see if I could find them. So Morrow, who, by the way, works for the Vancouver Community Policing Office, got to work. And it turns out that they were in the airport, and I got some hope. And uh, as the weekend went on, I checked, and they had gone to somebody's home. After about a day or so, I saw the case here back at the airport near the Air Canada baggage drop. Interesting. I say, Dr. Watson, what do you say we might have here? I don't want to jump to conclusions, but I think it's quite safe to say that uh, it's most likely an an airport employee. For the last few days, Mauro Francis has been watching his AirPods via his phone travel from SeaTac Airport. Ten minutes ago, look at that. They're, They're still connected. Wait for it. They are back for the third time in Sumner, Washington. Tech expert Mike Agarbo tells CTV News, unlike iPhones, iPads, and MacBooks, you can't render AirPods useless when it sprouts legs and deserts you. What can you do? If you do lose your AirPods, you can put a, a loss message on, basically. So if someone else picks them up, uh, they will see that uh, through their Apple device. But then it's up to them to be a, a good person and uh, return them to you. And you can always follow their every move. Well, I'd like to believe that, you know, maybe they put it in their pocket and said, I'm going to go, you know, they're in the middle of a shift and uh, that they had just, oh, gone home and come back. But it's been a couple days now, so. <laughs> you know anyone in Auburn or Sumner with a snazzy new pair of AirPods? That's where Morrow Francis keeps seeing his. We'll see where they go. We'll see what happens. I mean, if the off chance that uh, they're able to get in touch with the employee and uh, retrieve them. Um, That would be great, but I've kind of moved on. You know, some might ask, have you really moved on? Morrow says he's not going to personally track down this person and demand his AirPods back, but he probably could. And perhaps that's enough for our bandit boy or shady lady to come clean and turn them in. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Speed limit signs are everywhere on public roads, a reminder to obey the law. And in one Washington town, though, the reminder comes with a smile. 
courtesy of a television icon. The posted speed limit is 25 in Langley on Whidbey Island, followed by a familiar warning, speed checked by radar. And below that, unauthorized, is a smiling 8x10 glossy of actor Gary Berghoff. That's right, Corporal Radar O'Reilly, company clerk on TV's MASH. Why, uh, radar? Uh, sometimes I can tell what's going to happen before it happens. For example, if you speed through Langley, radar might tell if you're going to get a ticket. No one knows who posted radar's face on the speed limit sign, but residents don't seem to mind. One tells the Daily Herald, quote, When I see radar as I'm heading home, I have an urge to salute. And if the friendlier-than-usual speed reminder serves to secure public safety, perhaps Radar himself would approve. A lot of lives depend on me doing my job, and I'm the only one around here who can. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. So there you have just a fraction of what stories we felt were most important for you of the past week so you could be in the know. It's all the stories we have here for the week ending January the 14th. Northwest News this week heard every week at this time here on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7. And as I mentioned, it is available as a podcast for your listening convenience at nwnewsradio.com. In fact, we archive all the shows. You'll find other podcasts as well, Politicast, LifeBeat, and Puget Town Now. And if you enjoyed this program as a podcast, feel free to share rating and review we hope you will at apple podcast we thank you for that northwest this week every week produced by bill o'neill editor and tech advisor painter webb i'm mark christopher thank you so much for listening and right here we will be again next week have a great week